Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode number 105. We're talking about saturated fat and red meat and all that fun stuff once more. Now, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you'll note that this is a partial rebroadcast of episode number 76. It's basically a discussion we have with Dr. Austin Baraki and Alan Flanagan about some new quote-unquote red meat intake guidelines that came out in late 2019. I say quote-unquote because no one, you know, asked these folks to come out with new guidelines. And in fact, the existing guidelines exist for a reason. And we talk about those reasons and get into the nuance of red meat intake. Um, That said, it seems timely because a new article that was recently published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in June of 2020 now, that journal article is not open access, meaning that you have to have, you know, academic credentials or, you know, through your college or university or workplace, be able to pull the full paper so you can read it in its entirety. But the, you know, just abstract that you can get online for free effectively tries to build this narrative that we shouldn't be limiting our saturated fat intake. And I kind of wanted to address that here as uh, alongside, you know, these sort of broader dietary pattern goals that we think are important. So first up, let's just read this abstract together so you get a sense of where we're coming from, um, and then this whole discussion makes a little bit more sense. So again, this is the you know verbatim from this paper. The recommendation to limit dietary saturated fatty acid intake has persisted despite mounting evidence to the contrary. Most recent meta-analyses of randomized trials and observational studies found no beneficial effects of reducing saturated fatty acid intake on cardiovascular disease and total mortality, and instead found protective effects against stroke. So a couple of things. Uh, this is not a study. People are quoting it like this is new experimental you know, evidence or randomized controlled trial. It's not. It's actually just an op-ed that was published in this journal, uh, which sounds very prestigious. And, you know, they definitely publish great studies. So, you know, the Journal of American College of Cardiology is a legitimate journal. They usually publish good stuff. Um, but this is an op-ed. It's not a systematic review. It's not a meta-analysis. It's not a study um, of any sort. It's just an op-ed. Um, Further, the actual current recommendations are to keep saturated fatty acid intake to less than 10% of your total daily caloric intake. So if you're eating 3,000 calories a day, then you should have less than 300 calories uh, per day from dietary saturated fat. Um, this, This sort of abstract, the narrative, again, that's being sort of passed around the internet suggests that there's, you know, the, the current evidence doesn't actually support that. However, the only studies that actually don't show a benefit of lowering dietary saturated fatty acid intake are those that are comparing two groups that are both already below that 10% cutoff, meaning they're comparing somebody uh, or a group that's eating you know 10% of their daily calories from saturated fat versus 5% uh, percent of their total uh, daily caloric intake from saturated fat or the groups are so close that the difference is actually negligible, meaning it's like 12% of their total daily uh, uh, calorie intake from saturated fat versus 8% of their total daily calorie intake from saturated fat. It's just not big enough. Um, That said, there's robust evidence showing that lowering dietary saturated fatty acid intake to less than 10%, uh, particularly if it's substantially higher, like 15% or 20% or even higher than that, Uh, reduces atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, which is a fancy way of saying heart disease risk. And that includes stuff like heart attack, stroke, peripheral artery disease, et cetera. So lots and lots of data there. And I cite all of this and discuss this extensively in the article, The Science of Red Meat Intake, which I've linked in the description below. It's been on our website since uh, November of 2019. And so you guys should check that out. 
at the end of that article, I actually discussed some dietary pattern goals that actually have uh, good evidence to support them. And that kind of leads to this broader discussion of like, hey, what's a good diet? So I kind of wanted to go over those points in more detail, uh, especially if you haven't actually gotten to the end of that article yet. It's, you know, kind of a long one. There's over 70 citations supporting, you know, what I'm saying in that article. And so I wanted to kind of go through each one of those points about what dietary pattern goals we think are important and why and how you would, you know, maybe practically implement that in somebody who's ready to make that behavioral change. So Let's go over to the article. Again, it's on our website, uh, Science of Red Meat Intake article. It's also linked in the description below, as mentioned before. So first goal, the total daily calorie intake should achieve a healthy body fat and muscle mass levels while also supporting appropriate amounts of physical activity. Vegetarian and vegan approaches can be utilized based on individual preferences, as vegans and vegetarians tend to eat an average of 600 and 263 fewer calories per day, respectively, compared to those who eat both plants and meat. So... Basically, what this is saying, the, you know, first goal that we would have of a, you know, healthy dietary pattern would be to consume the appropriate amount of total daily calories. So you can do this on a vegan diet. You can do this on a vegetarian diet. You can do this on an uh, omnivorous diet. But by hook or by crook, you got to get to the correct amount of total daily calories. So my recommendation would be to go over to the NIH body weight planner, plug in all of your stats and your physical activity level and see, you know, how many calories you should be eating per day. And this, again, assumes that somebody's ready to make this behavioral change, you know, for a dietary intervention. They really are keyed up on, on making some dietary pattern changes. And so this would be the first place to start, you know, find out how many calories you should be consuming per day. Uh, some will argue that, you know, a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet is uniquely health promoting, although that doesn't seem to be supported by the evidence. Um, the main benefits of a vegan or vegetarian diet that is that people will tend to eat less calories. So again, if you're on a vegan diet, it's about 600 calories less per day. If you're on a vegetarian diet, it's about 260 less calories per day than somebody who eats plants and animals. Um, so, you know, considering the uh, obesity epidemic and uh, that most folks will actually, you know, eat too many calories, that can, you know, be a health-promoting diet uh, uh, just because folks eat less calories. That being said, if you can eat, you know, plants and animals and still uh, consume a diet that is uh, that comports with the existing evidence on healthy dietary patterns. But by hook or by crook, you got to get to the correct amount of total daily calories. And so in that first sentence, I actually said healthy body fat. We don't actually have a specific healthy body fat cut point. The WHO, World Health Organization, had at some point said for, for men it's about 20% and for women it's about 25%, but they don't really use that anymore. And what we do now to screen for excess adiposity or excess body fat is use uh, BMI, so uh, body mass index. Uh, we also use waist circumference. And then we also use the presence of adiposity-related chronic disease. And so there's a whole list, a compendium, of different uh, sort of adiposity-related chronic diseases. So things like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, male infertility, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you have – if someone has a BMI that is in the uh, overweight or obese range and their waist circumference is in excess – of the current cut point for their ethnicity um, that suggests that they're carrying too much uh, body fat and or they have an adiposity-related chronic disease, then ideally those folks would uh, lose weight provided they were ready to make that behavioral change. And we have a full article on how to measure your waist and kind of what the current cut points are and uh, some additional nuance there. It's also a YouTube video on that. So that is point number one. Point number two. 
total dietary protein intake should fall somewhere between 1.6 to 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, unless it's medically contraindicated. Uh, and how that breaks down, effectively, if you're maintaining or gaining weight, really 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day is probably fine. Um, in fact, in, in the majority of cases will be fine unless somebody is frankly anabolically resistant. And so individuals with medical conditions that make them anabolically resistant, individuals who are sedentary or untrained or not training um, or uh, who are elderly um, tend to be more anabolically resistant and you you know could theoretically uh, uh, push for higher protein intakes. But that doesn't mean they need to be up at you know 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. In fact, that upper range, 2.5, 2.4 uh, to 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day should probably be, probably be reserved for these sort of you know physique athletes who are already very lean and training very hard, so getting ready for a bodybuilding show or, or something like that. Um, that being said, you know, if I had a person who was maintaining or gaining weight, but who preferred to eat, you know, that one gram per pound of body weight, which is 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, I'd be totally fine with that. There's really no benefit to, you know, getting to bringing the protein down to 1.6, unless it spontaneously improves some other part of their dietary pattern. So it's really kind of personal preference, but if you're getting at least that 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, you're probably fine on your protein intake. And at levels that high, it doesn't matter where the protein's coming from, meaning that you could be on a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, or uh, consume animal products and be fine. There's, you know, it just doesn't matter once the dose is that high. So really unconcerned about, you know, where you're getting your protein from, unless it's substantially lower than that. Okay, so that's point number two. Point number three, total dietary fiber intake should be at least 25 to 30 grams per day, ideally sourced from vegetables, fruits, and complex carbohydrate sources. So really, we have no upper limit on how many servings of fruits and vegetables you should have per day. Uh, depending on the fruit and vegetable, the serving somewhere usually between you know, 80, 85 grams to 100 grams. Um, but it just depends. So check the, you know, however you're purchasing the stuff, or you can check the USDA uh, sort of food database to see what a serving is. Um, but yeah, we're looking for like, you know, six to 10 servings of fruit and vegetables per day, but there's no upper limit. And again, we'd be aiming for 25 to 30 grams of total dietary fiber per day or more. Again, no real upper limit here. We would prefer that most of your fiber is coming from fruits, vegetables, and, uh, and whole grains here. Uh, fourth point, Dietary fat intake should be primarily unsaturated, ergo from marine and plant sources with saturated fat limited to approximately 10% of or less of total daily calories. Uh, when replacing saturated fat with other nutrients, we recommend foods rich in polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, monounsaturated fatty acids, or complex carbohydrates, depending on an individual's preference. Uh, basically, if your saturated fatty acid intake is high, you're on a carnivore diet that you know was heavy on uh, a red meat that had a high saturated fatty acid intake or something like that, and you were like, hey, you barbell medicine guys, you know this is good information. I want to change my dietary pattern. It doesn't mean replace those calories with sugar because, in fact, that can have a deleterious effect on someone's lipid profile and, and therefore their atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. Rather, we'd have them replace those calories with nuts or complex carbohydrates like whole grains or uh, other sort of uh, uh, fatty uh, fat sources like uh, peanut butter, avocado, olive oil, etc. 
So effectively, you can take this inventory and say, all right, how many of these dietary pattern check, you know, goals am I, am I checking off the list? Are my total daily calories correct? And you know that they are correct if your body fat is within, you know, normal limits, meaning that you're not, your BMI is not over 30 because basically over 30, it's not like you're just carrying so much lean body mass that like, oh man, these, these scales no longer apply to me. Uh, and your waist circumference is not above the that cutoff, uh, where significant risk of adiposity-related chronic disease goes up markedly, and you don't have any adiposity-related chronic disease, then your calorie intake is probably okay, unless your muscle mass levels are low or you'd like to you know increase it, in which case you could consider adding calories to your diet. Um, if you you know, answered yes to any of those things. Oh, my BMI is above 30. My waist circumference is elevated, or I do have adiposity related chronic disease or, you know, one or more of those things, then we'd recommend weight loss via calorie restriction. And again, you can find out what your, you know, total daily calorie goal should be at least a good place to start by visiting the NIH body weight planner, uh, website. It's free. You can kind of go full nerd mode and, uh, uh, find out, you know, how many calories you need to restrict and how long it's going to take uh, if you're able to adhere to the diet. And again, this all assumes that you're ready for that behavioral change. So that's a review of thing one. Thing two is the dietary protein intake. Just set your protein, 1.6 grams of protein uh, per ke- uh, kilogram body weight per day there or thereabouts. Um, and you can get it You can get that protein from vegan sources, vegetarian sources, or animal sources, or a combination of all of the above. It doesn't matter. I wouldn't micromanage that. You'll note that we did not spend any significant time talking about meal frequency or how much protein should be per meal. You know, that's just a twud, time wasted on useless detail for most folks. Um, If you really, you know, wanted to... Uh, uh, build a dietary pattern that you can adhere to. It's going to be more personal preference about how much proteins, you know, in each meal and where you're getting that protein from. Um, That being said, if you ask me, I would prefer that most folks consume an equal amount of protein in each meal three to five times a day, spread three to five hours apart. But I don't really have a lot of evidence suggesting that that will lead to better outcomes, i.e. more strength gained, more muscle mass, or better adherence. Third thing, just review, get your dietary fiber from uh, fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, the more, the better in general, but we'd aim for like 25 to 35 grams per day. And then as far as dietary fat goes, keeping a uh, total daily saturated fat intake to 10% or less of total daily calories is beneficial for reducing disease, uh, heart disease risk. And again, in that paper that I wrote, the science of red meat intake, I show the overwhelming evidence that reducing total daily saturated fat intake from greater than 10% to less than 10% uh, can improve outcomes and reduce the risk of heart disease. So hopefully that all makes sense. Now let's get to the interview with uh, Dr. Baraki and Alan Flanagan, where we discuss the red meat intake guidelines, quote unquote. Yeah, my name is Alan Flanagan. I'm a postgraduate researcher uh, pursuing a PhD at the University of Surrey. Uh, It's the same institution I did my MSc in. And I am known colloquially as the Nutritional Advocate, which is the Instagram handle that puns on my previous life as a lawyer. Yeah, so uh, if you guys aren't familiar with Alan Flanagan, he's a former lawyer, master's in nutritional medicine, PhD candidate, chrononutrition, and also the co-host of the Cut Through Nutrition podcast with Dr. Woolrich. The real question here is, when is season two coming out? So when I would say by... 
kind of mid-November, being realistic with the time frame. So we decided, I think we laid this out in one of the, the first episodes of the first season, but we wanted to be a resource for, for practitioners specifically and kind of cutting through a lot of the nutritional nonsense that has seemed to permeate into kind of mainstream medicine, particularly in the UK, where there is just this crazy divisive war between like the plant-based doctors and the keto doctors. And it's like, stop this. We're all grown adults. So we want that to be a kind of like, what does the evidence actually say? So, you know, if you were, if you were someone here confused in that debate, you would have a good resource to go to. So we're going to focus specifically on conditions. Season two is going to focus specifically on cardiovascular disease. Uh, so we will be delving into much of what I think we're going to be discussing today. And uh, I think we're going to aim to start recording uh, in the next couple of weeks. So yeah, bet, bet November would be season two. Uh, yeah, so really looking forward to that. If you guys have not listened to the Cut Through Nutrition season one, please go binge listen to that. Leave them a five-star rating and review on iTunes so it trends to the top so people can also listen to that. So it, so it, so it fights back against some of the really negative reviews we, we get. <laughs> well, it's, it's, also, it's also very self-serving because the more people get exposed to that information and the more that becomes like the mainstream narrative, the less work we have to do right. to like correct, to correct some of this stuff. <laughs> right, right. I mean, we were just at a seminar. Uh, we just had a seminar in St. Louis and uh, we talk extensively about uh, nutritional interventions and the current evidence on how they pertain to each medical topic or training topic that we discuss. And generally the responses that we get, because we ask for feedback at every seminar, generally the responses are pretty positive and, and, you know, people give us like useful criticisms on how to like make it more accessible, digestible, give people more resources that they just, they want more information. Like where do we go next? Like that's the thing, which is great because it makes us put out a better product. But then there was a, a comment about, well, I like that you guys, you know, completely dismissed the low carbohydrate diet. Uh, as a potential intervention where, and, you know, there's all this data supporting its superiority to, you know, other diets, particularly in, in, in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And I was like, well, we didn't dismiss it. We discussed it. And then the state of the evidence is how we, you know, communicated it. But <laughs> you, you kind of want to go back and be like, where are you getting this idea that it's superior? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not through the Cut Through Nutrition podcast. No, no, no. And it's, but it's, it's, it comes back to the, and, and we did, we did an episode on this, but it's, it's the belief system thinking. Yep. And it's this idea that, well, you know, in, in the scientific process, we, ha we have an idea, we form it into a theory or a hypothesis, and we work forward towards testing that. And then we move forward with the results of that. What's happening now, particularly in nutrition, is people are deciding these are my beliefs. And I'm going to now work backwards from here to find what I can add to my belief that will that will confirm my bias towards this particular belief system. And yep. that becomes very difficult to disabuse people of um, because they're not interested in, in hearing the other side. And the what you end up in is a dialogue where you're trying to articulate why a particular study is flawed or why x didn't actually show what they think it showed and all you meet is a dismissal that's not really based off any scientific critique it's just simply like oh i don't agree with that study it was too short or it was too this and you're just like but you're just being obstructionist you're not actually having a scientific discourse with me here um, right. just standard human behavior sapiens like just, <laughs> yeah <totally. laughs> 
just irrational, yes. emotional, fallible chimpanzees, you know? That's right. right. That just swung out yeah. of a tree one day and made a fire. <laughs> right. yeah, or, 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 or bonobos, whatever. Yeah, you know, bonobos, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like bonobo, actually. Uh, it's got a good ring. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, it was um, it was interesting. I was doing a little research for this uh, the nutrition port part of our uh, our book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it's we're working on it. Yeah. But um, there, there was a, a few papers I ended up pulling on the uh, on world religions and how many of them had a specific diet like dietary you know pattern that they followed or specific dietary restrictions. Wow. And so, yeah, in uh, over over a hundred and it was either one hundred twenty something, one hundred thirty something uh, world religions, um, over ninety percent of them gave specific either dietary guidelines or uh, restrictions, which you that know kind of ties into this whole belief system, right? Right. And, so it's 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 truly intertwined with belief. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to separate. But anyway, we won't belabor that point. That's for <laughs> maybe season three of the yeah. Cut Through Nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've already tackled politics in their first season. Religion will be up next. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, this podcast is actually going to be quite meaty. Yes, it you will. see what I did there. Um, the first topic that I wanted to address is on these new meat recommendations. And you guys can't see this, but I'm putting uh, scare quotes around recommendations mm-hmm. because they're very controversial. So what happened was, just to give the listeners at home a little background information, uh, one uh, new systematic review and one new clinical guideline recently got published October 2019 of this year uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, the systematic review was called Red and Processed Meat Consumption and Risk for All-Cause Mortality and Cardiometabolic Outcomes, Systematic Review and meta-analysis of cohort studies. Effectively, these authors found that there was low certainty evidence uh, that a reduction in unprocessed meat intake of three servings per week, so cutting down meat intake, red meat intake per week uh, by three servings, uh, was associated with a very small reduction in risk for cardiovascular mortality, stroke, myocardial infarction, that's heart attack, and type 2 diabetes. In addition, uh, low certainty evidence was found that a reduction in processed meat intake of three servings per week uh, was also associated with a very small decrease in risk for all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, stroke, heart attack, and type 2 diabetes. So based on this, the clinical guidelines then uh, were basically formed to where this expert panel of 14 members suggested that adults continue their current processed and unprocessed meat consumption, effectively saying Yo, the juice isn't worth the squeeze here by cutting down on red uh, red meat intake and and further advising the public. So, the first question here is, Doc uh, Allen, what do you? Why do you think that the panel came to these conclusions? Um, I think I think there's two parts to it. I think the first thing that's really important to stress to listeners is that this idea of a consensus panel issuing a guideline from these findings was wholly inappropriate. There was no mandate based on this research. That's like me just deciding I'm going to do a study in, for example, chrononutrition, and I'm now going to issue guidelines for when people should eat. Like They took it upon themselves to form guidelines, and they didn't have a mandate to do so at the level of public health or to override the IARC designation in relation to meat and processed meat and cancer that was from 2009. So that's the first things to stress. So do not take these results framed as guidelines as actually updating our current guidelines, because there's a lot of controversies. So the second thing is, with nutritional sciences, there has been, and we talked about this in, our, in the first podcast we did together, 
quite a distinct disconnect between applying biomedical standards of evidence to nutrition as the subject of inquiry. So the biggest issue in terms of methodology with that study was the use of the grade system. Um, we talked on the first podcast we did about the, the disconnect between nutrition science and the biomedical model. And the grade system is designed to grade pharmaceutical trials for the most part. So strength of evidence is directly related to the hierarchy of evidence. So meta-analysis on top, randomized control trials ideally informing the meta-analysis, and prospective cohort studies or observational research are a distant third. With nutrition, we are investigating diseases that have long latency periods and take 20, 30, 40 years to develop. And the exposure is constant or consistent during that time frame. So it's impossible to do a randomized controlled trial to investigate a relationship between, for example, processed meat consumption and, and colorectal cancer. So prospective cohort studies are the tool from an investigative perspective to do that with nutrition. But by using the grade system, you immediately bias the strength of evidence you're including against the primary design of the study being included. And with, in contrast, the IARC designation in 2009 for carcinogenic capacity of processed meat, and they, they classed it a group one carcinogen, that was using the prospective cohort studies, the observational research. That, and the, the, the criteria in that context is that it's consistent across populations and in multiple studies to a point where the likelihood of confounding and chance and error is minimized, having regard to the fact that there's only a certain amount that you can minimize all of those things in observational research. And then it's married up with mechanistic work. So we know from mechanistic studies that processed meat in particular has a couple of characteristics, high concentration of nitrosamines, uh, high concentration of heme iron, both of those might interact in the colon, um, often occurs in the context of low dietary fiber intake and, and low intake of, of protective compounds from vegetables and fruit. And it's, it's when you combine these converging lines of evidence all pointing the same way that you come to a scientific consensus. And in any systematic review or meta-analysis that really hones in on one level and doesn't consider these multiplicity of, of converging lines of evidence, it's going to be a distorted outcome. And then use of the grade system as your means of assessing the strength of the evidence is going to completely bias the results away from any strength of association because there simply are no long-term RCTs looking at this outcome. So I think it was a problematic revisiting of this issue. I think it's important as well to state that in a lot of the, the cohort studies, what's going to be important is the, the relative exposure in the control group. Uh, like There's no, obviously, in a randomized sense, control group in epidemiology, but what the comparison group is. And we know from a lot of the studies that have looked at meat intake in recent years that average meat intake in the population in some populations is not that high. Uh, so in the Epic Oxford cohort, which was a UK cohort study that compared vegetarians to meat eaters, 
there wasn't a huge difference in risk. But when you scrutinize the data, the average meat intake in the meat eating group was like 78 grams a day. That's half of our current recommendations of 145-ish, 150 grams. So it was, it was a problematic revisit of the evidence. No one is ever saying that a bit of a ribeye you know, in your diet or in, including meat in your diet is an issue. But this idea that we should just not pay attention to it, which is, is, is how this study is being interpreted, um, is, is, like I said, a problematic revisit of an issue that we have addressed in, in multiple studies and through multiple consensus panels over the last 10 to 15 years in nutrition. So to be clear, based on what you're saying and based on what we're seeing from this, uh, the way the uh, researchers uh, kind of uh, viewed this set of evidence that they pulled together for this using the specific methods of analysis, uh, i.e. the grade system, there is no possible way for them to come up with any sort of a conclusion that they would deem to be based on strong evidence just inherently due to the way they're viewing the included studies that are available. Exactly. Exactly. There was no way they were going to come to any other conclusion other than, oh, this is all weak evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Based on using the, the grade based criteria. This criteria. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other interesting note that you brought up there uh, is that, you know, like the average meat, red meat intake in North America and Western Europe is about two to four servings per week, uh, which works out to be like 170 grams ish, uh, t- up to 350 ish grams mm-hmm. um, of, of meat per week. And the current guidelines um, is right at that lower end. So effectively, you might have people who are adhering to the current guideline right if they're having two servings of red meat per week and you're saying and and yeah then you could conclude that like reducing that by three servings one you you can't do it because they're not even having three servings a week Uh, yes but they're they're already they're already adhering to the current guidelines we have based on all the evidence right uh, those multiple multiple converging lines of evidence so it's hard to like exactly and that's that's a crucial point because in in nutritional epidemiology we because there's no placebo for food all we're ever doing is comparing levels of exposure so you need a a a high a a group consuming a lot versus a group consuming not a lot or not at all um but if your exposures are in this gray area of people relatively not eating more your your relative risk reduction is not going to be particularly pronounced so people then come to the, the wrong conclusion of there is no benefit, yeah. but in fact, people are already at this level where they may be actually achieving a benefit in terms of their level yeah. of reduction. This is a hugely, hugely important point, and I think it's important enough that, I mean, I know we're going to touch on the same phenomenon happening again when we get to dietary fat intake a little right. bit later, and we'll revisit it to make sure the audience understands. Yeah. Because really, you know, it, it's part of what leads to so much confusion when people are seeing alternating headlines about whether something actually affects risk or not, uh, particularly when the results are framed as just high versus low intake or higher yeah. versus lower intake without looking at the absolute levels of intake. So we'll, right. we'll hammer this point again a little I, bit. I, I think we will because we're certainly in relation to, to dietary and saturated fat, like it is yeah. the crux of where people go yeah. wrong looking at looking sure. at studies. Yeah. Yeah. Cue the dramatic music. Yes. <laughs> um, so would it be safe to say that 
you, you reject these recommendations as one, even recommendations or guidelines to begin with, and then two, the actual practical takeaways. You, you don't think that they're uh, that people should be following these? Yeah, one, they're not guidelines. Um, there, there has been no change in the guidelines. Uh, two, it's it's just a study that has come out. Um, I think it plays to people's biases in the camps that we have in nutrition right now. But for me. The IARC designation in terms of processed meat, that we should be limiting that to less than 50 grams a day, I think is valid. I see no reason to change that. Nothing wrong with some chorizo and pepperoni on the pizza every now and then, but we don't want to be eating bacon for breakfast every morning. Uh, I don't think that's unreasonable as a recommendation. And two, in relation to unprocessed meat, I do think the totality of evidence suggests a wider diet pattern is going to be an important mediating factor. So what we what we don't know is in the context of like high intake of dietary fiber, and I mean over 30 grams a day and high intake of vegetables and fruit and other kind of beneficial plant compounds, you know, moderate red meat consumption, I don't think is, is, is likely a risk. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's where I, I don't see any reason to change that recommendation. What would high intake of unprocessed red meat in that context still confer a risk? I don't think we, we have that data and we can't say. Uh, so I think all things considered and factoring in environmental variables, I think the advice to be moderate with unprocessed red meat consumption remains valid in the context of a diet high in fiber, vegetables, fruit, all that good stuff. Yeah, it sounds like you you kind of already went into the processed meat uh, uh, bit uh, a little bit, and we we did want to touch on it just because people, you know, there's some confusion in the public uh, as far as like, well, one, what even is a processed meat, and then two, like, like can you lump these together? So just to, as an aside for the listeners at home, the the way we kind of grade or rank. Uh, processed foods is based on this Nova diet uh, classification system. Nova is not an acronym; it's just a, a series of four capital letters that they use to uh, <laughs> come up with this classification system. Uh, group one is the most unprocessed, uh, minimally processed, or, or unprocessed foods, and then group four is ultra processed with five plus ingredients. Um, processed meats actually go in group three, so this is effectively. Uh, uh, processed foods with like salt or sugar yeah. or both or, or something or, like or that smoking added. Smoking or cure any curing methods. So they're all, yeah. you know, any industrial processes that enhance flavor or added preservatives. Um, yep. So, th- so I have two questions based on this. So, one, do you think it's fair to actually kind of lump these two together when looking at, you know, meat, red meat consumption in general. And then the second question is, you know, generally uh, these ultra processed or processed red meats tend to be a little cheaper than their, their unprocessed, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, sort of compare comparable like foodstuffs. Do you think that that creates barriers towards like implementing this? Yeah. Um, I, and so in, in the first question, is it, should they be lumped in together? I think the Nova categorization, while it's very useful for our current food environment, is imperfect. So, you know, like including bacon in that when the process has been drying and salting and curing, um, you know, probably is not, you know, the same uh, as a food as a McDonald's hamburger right? Because their, their, their methods are completely different and the ultimate product's different. So I do think there are imperfections to the Nova categorization. Um, but I think for the ultra-processed foods category, it's useful for 
a lot of the characteristics of current diet patterns in, in Western societies. With the second issue, um, I, I absolutely think that there are, and I, I had this criticism of the Eat Lancet report when it came out in January, basically saying that if we all go plant-based, we can save the world and ourselves. And there was just this very classist, arrogant overtone to the document um, that basically pictured everyone in their home kitchen with plenty of time to prepare a chickpea curry. The reality is one of the problems with, and, and one of the problems with quantifying meat intake, even in the general population right now, is there's been a significant increase in energy intake away from the home in restaurants, fast food consumption. And we can see that in all of the NHANES data in America and the NDNS data in the UK on, on population kind of food intake. So it's very difficult to quantify what the level of meat intake in the population is in the first instance. But two, we do know that generally there is strong ties to socioeconomic status, um, particularly when we're talking about uh, fat, what we would term fast food consumption. And as an example of that, there was a study in the UK last year that just models the density of four major fast food outlets, McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, and there was a, a chicken shack chain that's common in the UK. And they modeled Is it non is it Nando's? No, it was it was no, it was like a it was more of a, like a fried chicken shack. Like Nando's, honestly, if everyone in the population was eating Nando's, it probably would be an improvement in health. Um, <laughs> agreed. So, agreed. <laughs> but it modeled uh, the density of these four fast food outlets relative to quintiles of social deprivation and the areas of the greatest social deprivation across the UK had the highest density of all four. So, so there, there are strong ties to, you know, it, it would be great if everyone could, you know, have the self direction over their diet to say, well, I'm going to reduce processed meat consumption. Not everybody has that luxury. And I think that, we, you know, that's obviously a, 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 an aspect of the nutrition conversation that we're all very aware of. Yep. Yep. And it's not just people hear socioeconomic status and all, all they think about not, you know, I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouths or ideas in anybody's head about what they're actually thinking, but just in general, people think, oh, that's, you're just talking about money. No. Um, but in, in addition to, to financial resources, we're talking about education, like knowledge of even how to prepare food, how to shop, time to, you know, do you have an oven? Do you have a way to prepare this in your home? Like, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's not simply wealth disparity. Correct. Yes. Um, cool. So I'm glad we got you to weigh in on that. Now, taking a more uh, practical approach, Baraki, when you're counseling patients on dietary change, like, do you even address red meat consumption at all? Like, when you're trying to get them to change their dietary pattern, is that something you talk about? Um, I'll say that it's pr generally not among the higher priorities that I take when having these conversations. And of course, you know, there's no uh, one standardized conversation to have with patients about this because you have to account for all of these kind of individual factors like where is their dietary starting point how much are they willing to do what changes are they willing to make and then all of that in the context of what's feasible for them in their socioeconomic situation um, i do think that you know as as we were just talking about on the processed meat front if that comprises like an enormous proportion of somebody's diet then i think that we can make a reasonable case for you know replacing that with uh, with some alternative sources but generally, even among those who may be, let's say they're exceeding the, the guidelines by a bit, I think that, you know, I, I, it, 
I tend to favor focusing more on increasing dietary fiber intake and, and uh, fruit and vegetable intake among these individuals when I can compared to fighting a battle that I may, that they may not be willing to change uh, on at least early on. So that's kind of, that's kind of the angle. Uh, that I and I think on. that's eminently sensible. I had a conversation with someone after, you know, the guidelines came out and she was basically saying that, you know, with her patients, like, you know, there's a practicality to, to doing this. And if you're dealing with people for whom, you know, meat intake is, is very much a big part of, you know, you're not going to get a lot of red blooded men in the Western world to give up their Sunday roast, right? You know? And so, so there is, there, there are all of these added cultural and social dynamics that, that are important and are going to dictate someone's consumption. And I think actually, if you can win with getting them to massively increase their fiber intake and their vegetable intake and their fruit intake, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big win for their health status. Absolutely. Um, and then you can work on things down the line, but you know, optimal is the enemy of good. So. True. Yep. That was my actual like positive takeaway from this, these quote unquote meat new meat guidelines when because you know they were effectively saying you know maybe counseling people to reduce their red meat intake uh you know the the juice again might not be worth the squeeze and and with that in mind i'm like well i can see where that you know may in fact be the case and in focusing on other stuff focusing your energies on other things like incre- increasing fruit and vegetable intake increasing dietary fiber intake and, and uh things of that nature would probably be uh more advantageous and maybe even more uh you know doable but 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 the problem with sort of framing it as uh, in the way that like yeah well there's not really even good evidence to reduce meat intake almost gives people you know this free pass to like yeah dude all, all the red meat all you want it doesn't that, matter my big issue with that study is it it adds back to pandering to people in the population of what what they want to hear and. And although, and I know David Katz was very critical of it, and I don't agree with everything he says, um, but his writing does very much always challenge kind of my perspectives on a lot of these issues. And I remember him once writing that, like, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, the, you know, people want to eat a certain way because, because it ta- like, if you're giving people a mandate to, sure, everyone's wrong about meat, I'm going to Five Guys right? That, that's also not good public health advice. And that's where these studies are and the authors behind them and how they drive the publicity behind them is problematic for me. And they're not, I think, acting in the public good in the way that they really try and forcefully disseminate their findings. Um, and I think that I think that you know you know average Joe in the population is going to be like, well, this is all bullshit anyway, and go back to go back to the whopper. Stay, staying on this kind of meat topic, uh, but expanding it a little bit further. The other big topic we uh, we commonly discuss and that is related has to do with saturated fat intake, and this is uh, a timely because recently. You've been in, engaged in an Instagram debate, Instagram battle, Insta battle with the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so there's a couple interesting things. So, so to give the listeners at home sort of a little historical view on this, August 29, 2019 of this year, the British Journal of Sports Medicine Instagram page posted an infographic with the caption, hey, uh, that this 
particular editorial is one of their most read editorials of all time. And the editorial is titled, Saturated Fat Does Not Clog the Arteries. Coronary Heart Disease is a Chronic Inflammatory Condition the risk of which can be effectively reduced from healthy lifestyle interventions. So this editorial uh, was by uh, Malhotra et al., and it claimed that there was no association between dietary saturated fat intake and all-cause mortality or coronary heart disease or ischemic stroke. Uh, We would lump those latter two into atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCDD. They also claimed that there was no association between saturated fat intake and type 2 diabetes in what they termed healthy adults. And then there was also no benefit from reducing fat which included saturated fat intake in secondary prevention of heart attack, cardiovascular, or all-cause mortality. So they posted this. The response from uh, academics and clinicians who also happened to be on Instagram was almost universally yeah. <laughs> against. It was the-, the most amazing actual like call to action I've ever seen on social media. It was one of the most positive things I've seen on social media. I mean, I think even when you go back to that post now and scroll down who commented, you're just like, oh my God, this is epic. <laughs> yeah, heavy, heavy hitters in the field, um, actual experts. And, and again, it's really interesting that the British uh, Journal of Sports Medicine decided to post this because it's not really within their scope of practice, no. but that's, that's for yeah. another discussion. The, one other interesting thing about this I'll point out is that the title – doesn't necessarily conflict with what they're, I mean, it conflicts with what they're saying in the paper, meaning like if you re- just read the title as it stands, it's actually fairly right, correct. because saturated fat doesn't clog your arteries, L- LDL does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and coronary heart disease is a chronic inflammatory condition in general. That's, you know, for most people, that's not untrue. And then the risk can be reduced from lifestyle interventions. Yes. And then all this stuff in the paper, on the other hand, is just wrong. So it's just funny. Yes. So, so what we're going to do here uh, is unpack this a little bit further, try to discuss what saturated fat actually does, what it is, what actually confers increased risk from a dietary perspective of uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which again includes stuff like heart attack, ischemic stroke. Uh, Alan, can you just give the listeners at home kind of a, a brief overview of what actually is saturated fat? So... So when we talk about saturated fat in the diet, we're talking about a, a chemical composition of of fat, uh, basically meaning in the geeky sense that all available uh, carbon atoms have a corresponding hydrogen atom. So they're saturated. They're all, and it, it makes them rigid structures, and they're primarily found in animal food, animal fat. And there are certain exemptions in the plant world. So, for example, coconut oil. But broadly speaking, and in terms of the context in which we're talking about the relationship with ASCBD, we're talking about animal fats. And that's going to be important because we need to we need to talk about monounsaturated fat as well in that context. Um, I think the f- most kind of important point of departure is the historical context to why we became focused on the relationship. And that has become the subject of much narrative in certain circles, particularly the low carb and the paleo communities, where they have this very simplistic narrative worldview of of what happened. And it involves corrupt scientists, cherry picking data, being bought off by big sugar and forcing bad research 
through Congress to enact dietary guidelines that made, made everyone consume a low-fat diet. They replaced the fat with carbohydrate, and hey, presto, we have obesity, and it's because fat was vilified. Everything about that statement is total cockology. Uh, it reads, reads well on a blog, uh, cool story, bro, and all, but it is just nonsense. So, so what you're what you're referring to is kind of like this diet heart hypothesis that was initially put forward, where whereas consumption of either high fat, uh, particularly high saturated fat, or high high amounts of dietary cholesterol, I mean, really, you can pick your your poison here and how people are are kind of doing this uh, would confer increased risk of heart disease, um, and so and that seems to be the bigger hang up in those those uh right and so emerging in the 50s and early 60s was was the diet heart hypothesis and the lipid heart hypothesis and both of them are related and the diet heart hypothesis was that dietary intake of saturated fat and cholesterol increased risk for for ascbd the lipid heart hypothesis specifically related to blood lipids, in particular LDL cholesterol, as a direct causal pathway driving the process of atherosclerosis. And the two were obviously intimately linked. In the early research, people tend to suggest that it was just all based on poor observational research. Nothing could be really further from the truth. The early research that emerged certainly had strong epidemiology supporting it, people portrayed as weak, but it also had controlled feeding studies. We have metabolic ward studies going back to the 1950s in very controlled conditions where the effects of different fat subtypes, saturated, mono, and polyunsaturated, and carbohydrate were looked at for their impact on blood lipids. Not only that, but they did substitution studies where they would say, let's, let's replace 5% of saturated fat calories with 5% of polyunsaturated fat. See what happens to blood lipids. Let's do 5% sat fat, 5% carbohydrate. And from that, we ended up with quite a distinct hierarchy of which kind of macronutrients subtypes impact blood lipids negatively and which impact it positively where we substitute them. And that hierarchy was that when you replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, you get the greatest reduction in blood lipids, in LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol. When you replace them with monounsaturated fats, you get a, a, a good reduction, not as pronounced as with polyunsaturated. And when you replace them with complex high fiber carbohydrates, you get a reduction, but it's not enormous. And from those studies, we ended up with the hierarchy. That hierarchy is what plays out in the epidemiology consistently from the 50s to now. You replace saturated fat, you model replacement in observational epidemiology, you will see the same hierarchy come out and emerge from the data that you will see in controlled metabolic ward feeding studies. And then just to, just to finish that point, when we're, they were looking at the effects on blood lipids, it was obviously with a specific focus on LDL. Now, where people deny both the diet heart and the lipid heart aspects of the hypothesis is where you get a concomitant denial that LDL in and of itself is causative 
and you get all these rabbit hole suggestions of well it's more this you know type or this lipoprotein profile and all of this kind of stuff so there's a denial in that community or in those wider spaces not just that saturated fat has a relationship with heart disease but also that that ldl cholesterol does in and of itself yep that's actually a perfect segue uh for dr baraki to actually talk about you know one what even is ASCVD, like expand upon that. And then when we're talking about reducing risk of ASCVD, we talk about like primary and secondary reduction um, in those. Can you describe what those are? And then we'll kind of go into the effects of different blood lipid parameters, what they are and how they affect ASCVD. Yeah. So ASCVD, as you, as we said, stands for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. It's usually, it's the more technical term for what people mean when they talk about just heart disease in general, but it's a broader category because, you know, the idea here is that you're developing these uh, kind of lipid rich plaques that have a bunch of immune modification and smooth muscle proliferation and fibrous caps develop all this kind of fancy uh, uh, kind of pathophysiology going on that you develop these plaques and and can progress to become obstructive lesions, i.e. blocking blood flow in various blood vessels that can be in the coronary arteries, that can be in the the peripheral arteries, like in in the extremities, down in the legs and feet, for example, or in the brain for cerebrovascular disease. All of these kind of fit under the general umbrella. And it's just so incredibly common. It's something that I see and deal with uh, literally every single day uh, in the hospital, whether it's patients with uh, uh, transient ischemic attacks or strokes or chest pain, uh, anginal anginal chest pain or uh, heart attacks or peripheral arterial disease, just basically referring to these uh, this uh, lipid-rich accumulation of plaques in the vascular system that can progress over time, undergo immune modification, and can lead to thrombosis, i.e. clots and, and um, acute cardiovascular events uh, are kind of the general uh, uh, term for that. And from a prevention standpoint, you know, these are kind of general, uh, general terms, primary prevention being, you know, something that you're Uh, implementing some sort of intervention that you're doing to prevent anything, uh, you know, a disease process from developing at all in the first place. Um, And secondary prevention tends to be more something that you're doing to kind of detect uh, and intervene on a condition that it uh, has developed before it becomes kind of symptomatic or before it causes problems. And there's even kind of a tertiary level here that you're dealing with kind of the, the, conse- the consequences or complications of a disease that's developed to prevent it, try to prevent it from progressing further or recurring in the future. Nice. So uh, we, with those definitions in mind, would you want to kind of describe how these blood lipoprotein levels influence ASCVD risk. So, you know, you can start with what are lipoproteins and then kind of kind of go from there. Yeah, I mean the the human like blood lipid trafficking system may is one of the most complex things that I've ever uh, uh, had, the, had the pleasure of trying to t- teach myself about and learn about. Um, it's been like many years trying to piece all this stuff together, and I'm still probably an amateur in this in this world of, of lipidology, but I find it super interesting. And, and the, the takeaways that I try to get people to understand is that we have these protein-based uh, particles circulating in our blood um, that are designed to carry around various types of lipids. And that's just because of the you know inherent water-based nature of, of humans i.e. the lipids are not, you know, water soluble on their own. They get, they get carried around on lipoproteins. So when we talk about LDL cholesterol, we're talking about the mass of cholesterol that is being carried on a low density lipoprotein particle or an LDL particle. We also have HDL particles, higher density uh, uh, lipoproteins. Uh, We have VLDLs and IDLs and all sorts of 
intermediate subspecies that get really complicated really fast. Their density typically refers to the ratio of how much protein to lipid uh, they're carrying. And the lipid fraction can include things like cholesterol and uh, fat-soluble vitamins and triglycerides and various other uh, uh, you know, bioactive uh, compounds and molecules. So the important thing here is that there are a certain subset of lipoproteins. They all carry this surface marker protein that helps to determine their function and what sort of receptors they interact with and what tissues take them up and where they go. And it's called apolipoprotein B, ApoB. And there's this subset of ApoB-containing lipoproteins or, uh, 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 that uh, when in circulation, they are the ones that are of sufficient size to basically penetrate vascular walls. Um, to get into the walls of the blood vessels where they get, there's this idea of uh, the immune response to retention uh, of these particles in the vascular wall. You get huge immune uh, response to these things and you can develop these atheromas, which are what, are what kind of progress and can turn into plaques and they can grow over time. And uh, they, that ultimately over the long run is what leads to some of these problems. And so you know, I tried to make it clear when I'm explaining this stuff uh, that the driver of this process, again, is the cumulative lifelong exposure to low density lipoproteins or ApoB containing lipoproteins um, over the course of a lifetime. And that exposure can be modified by a whole bunch of different things and the immune response can be modified by a whole bunch of different things. So the LDL is like the common, you know, driver of this across all scenarios. Um, but there are a whole bunch of other modifying factors that may be present or absent in a given individual. For example, the amount of systemic inflammation that's going on or various other factors that can influence this. But without the low density lipoprotein circulating in the blood, uh, you don't really get this atherosclerosis problem developing. And there are, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, uh, examples of situations where that's the case. A, a very good example would be individuals who have this genetic mutation called a, a PCFK9 loss of function, and they have like an overnight, like a 90% reduction in their lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease because their, or their tissues are just sucking up all the low density lipoproteins out of their circulation. So they don't swim around in the blood long enough to come to cause problems at all. That was beautiful. That was, I, uh, I, I have a tear. You guys can't see this. It was- so so pretty. Well, it was funny. We were in uh, Colorado doing a seminar, and there was a board certified lipidologist. So just like the the king nerd right. of the <laughs> lipid world. And and after Austin's cholesterol lecture, it, where we talk about this stuff and how you can uh, you know modify diet and modify training and stuff like that to kind of adjunctively or or prevent the, some of these things, um, he comes up to Austin. He says that was the best description of cholesterol <laughs> that I've ever heard. And I was like, okay. So Austin, Austin undersells himself when he says that he's an amateur, but just to, just to recap for the listeners at home. So what we're saying is that uh, a lipoprotein. So when you commonly think of LDL and HDL, these are lipoproteins, effectively just protein and lipid, uh, together. Okay. And they travel, they swim around the blood, uh, the systemic circulation in the blood. And if the LDL in particular, uh, is high enough, um, then that can cause problems because it can actually, uh, if it if it's one of the certain subspecies that's got uh, this ApoB, apolipoprotein B surface protein. So one one thing just to stress is that the when your LDL levels are high, that confers, uh, and based on a standard blood lipid panel, that confers the uh, 
most significant tell on, on if somebody's at increased risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So, in fact, when you go, you know, get your lipid panel done at, at, the, at the physician's office and you see a, a high LDL level, that is indicative of, uh, in general, an increased risk of ASCVD. And what you stated earlier, uh, Alan, was that we have these very well-controlled trials, both metabolic ward studies and then epidemiological studies where people with certain dietary patterns tend to increase LDL concentration in the blood based on certain dietary patterns. So do you want to talk about how, uh, in particular, saturated fat intake affects LDL levels in the, in the blood? So we've known, again, since the 1950s when this research started to emerge, that of the different types of macronutrients that were being looked at for their effects on blood lipids, the most significant increase in LDL cholesterol consistently occurred from saturated fat intake. The early research that had looked at this, the very early animal models that had looked at this, were famously done in, in rabbits who are awful for suffering hypercholesterolemia. <laughs> so in hindsight, the poor rabbits were goosed, but they used often feeds that were, were high in saturated fat and cholesterol. So a lot of animal foods, like butter, for example, was often used as a feed in some of these animal studies. Butter is high in saturated fat and it's high in dietary cholesterol. So in the early feeding studies, this hypothesis emerged that actually they were concomitant. They were traveling together, so to speak, saturated fat and cholesterol. Actually, when we separated them out, we started to understand that the dietary cholesterol didn't have the impact on blood cholesterol levels for multiple reasons. But for now, we'll just keep it simple. The dietary cholesterol didn't have the impact on blood cholesterol levels that saturated fat did. So it was very much focused on, on saturated fat. And we know now that there are other parameters in that, that saturated fat impacts. It increases um, hepatic triglyceride levels postprandially, and there are other mechanistic reasons why there would be an adverse cardiometabolic effect of a high saturated fat diet. But in the early research, the focus was very much on the relationship between saturated animal fat and LDL cholesterol. And you could see strong correlations in populations with high animal fat consumption, blood lipids at a population level, blood lipids in controlled feeding studies, and that tied a relationship then that was observed with heart disease mortality. And I stress mortality because a lot of people look at studies where they use, you know, quote, soft endpoints. So incidents of CVD or someone's had an event or these kind of things. But actually, when you really scrutinize the data on saturated fat, the strongest association is with actual ASCVD mortality, like death from heart disease. Um, now, the one thing that has to be qualified there is that blood cholesterol levels can vary significantly, not only within an individual, but across the population. And people's response to diet is variable in that respect. And this is quite important for a lot of the studies that people say will show there's no association. Because when some of the early pioneers of this work looked at this issue in the 70s, 
they came up with a mathematical model that still stands to this day. It's called the Keyes equation, and it is to this day accurate in terms of looking at predictive responses to different uh, dietary levels of intake and blood cholesterol levels. But there was mathematical modeling in 1978 by Keyes and Anderson that essentially predicted that the effect of the wide inter-individual difference in blood cholesterol levels in a population would mean that when you're doing population-based research, you would have essentially be always coming towards a null in, in your findings. Um, and, and so that's really important because we can explain why there are sometimes, quote, weak associations between blood lipids and heart disease and ASCVD at population levels. Um, and it's, it's about bringing it back to this total picture of evidence and looking at the controlled feeding studies and the effects of substitution. That's important. Um, but there is an explanation for why there can sometimes be an argument that, well, actually, the relationship between blood lipids and LDL in particular and heart disease in population studies appears weaker than one might think it would be. Yeah. But the, the, the important take home from all of this is that we have, again, multiple lines of converging evidence suggesting that things that increase your LDL cholesterol okay, tend to confer a significantly increased risk of ASCVD, saturated, increased in saturated fat intake uh, above uh, a certain amount tends to drive up LDL concentration in the blood. Right. And we fast forward to now, I mean, the 1950s, this is all emerging, 60s, it's emerging. But now we have familial hypercholesterolemia that essentially is sufficient in and of itself to prove the relationship between high levels of LDL and dying from ASCVD um, if it's left untreated. And conversely, we have the studies that Austin mentioned, which are genetic predispositions to lifelong lower LDL levels, where you're, whether it's a PSCSK9 in, in like, um, mutation or the... Um, the other one is, is PS, what's the other polymorphism I'm thinking of? Um, ugh, I can't remember, can't remember. But anyway, so there are a number of, of genetic polymorphisms that predispose to lifelong levels of, of low exposure, and they significantly reduce your risk. So, so LDL is in the causal pathway of atherosclerosis, and that is independent of the size and i think that's important to stress austin isn't it because people made particularly in the some of the low carb communities this idea that like oh well it's only small dense remodeled ldl that's a problem but actually the big fluffy ldl that like just wants cuddles like that <laughs> that lovely big fluffy buoyant ldl <laughs> just, it just wants a hug you know um yeah. The point I make on this, the point I make on this typically is, you know, we keep talking about LDL cholesterol, and again, the the important thing to recognize is that cholesterol and LDL are not the same thing. The LDL is carrying the cholesterol, and the blood. What we get on a standard blood lipid panel are proxy measurements. We're measuring the cholesterol mass being carried on it as a proxy for the concentration of the particles in the blood. We don't actually routinely measure direct LDLP or LDL particle concentrations or ApoB levels in the blood, um, just because they're more expensive and less accessible tests. So off of a standard lipid panel, the best metric or surrogate for risk 
in individuals is the non-HDL cholesterol measurement, which is what I tend to use myself in most contexts in practice. You take the total, you subtract the HDL, you get a non-HDL measurement. That basically is a good proxy or surrogate for all the atherogenic lipoproteins in the blood. That includes LDL and that includes certain other ones that can be involved in atherosclerosis. Um, the reason why we focus so much on LDL is because it tends to be the most prevalent in the blood due to its half-life being the longest. So it's, it's, it swims around in the blood for the longest period of time. And all of this has to do with the function of the LDL receptor. And this is the stuff I get into in my lecture that would uh, lead us down yeah, multiple other yeah. rabbit holes. And here, I, so. I think that, um, you know, is, is important because, um, and the, the recent, the European Atherosclerosis Society 2019 guidelines came out and some of the really interesting fine print in them is that under most circumstances, LDL, like the measure of LDL correlates very well to LDL cholesterol. There are exceptions to that, and one would be, for example, high levels of visceral adiposity and metabolic syndrome when we see the atherogenic dyslipidemia phenotype emerge. But, um, and, and for people listening, yeah, 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 for people listening, atherogenic, the, the atherogenic lipoprotein phenotype is basically a panel which looks like low HDL, high LDL and high triglycerides. But actually what we know from mechanistic work is when we scrutinize what's going on with that, yes, there's low HDL, but that LDL is typically a large number of small dense particles that are quite atherogenic. But yep, that basically mean, it tends to be associated with an insulin resistant state. In most it, of these exactly, cases. exactly. Yeah. And so, but outside of that, in other individuals that have high LDL, I think there's been a push in some circles to really attenuate or minimize the relevance of that. But yeah. in fact, again, accepting metabolic syndrome, high LDL generally, LDL particle correlates quite strongly to LDL cholesterol levels under normal circumstances or under most circumstances. Yeah, I think that, you know, when, when I get into these discussions and rarely arguments that I allow myself to get sucked into for people who remain skeptical of the role of li these lipoproteins in cardiovascular disease, I think that probably this, the, my favorite paper on the topic that I point people to that anybody can go to if they're interested is by, uh, I think his name is Brian Ferentz. The title, the title is uh, Low Density Lipoproteins Cause Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease. So he went like straight to the, straight to the point in the title from the European Heart Journal in 2017. It's like the yeah. best paper on the topic. And Brian, Brian Ferentz's work is beautiful. He's a beast. Yeah. And they, they have some nice graphs in there, particularly where they, you know, we keep talking about the convergence of multiple lines of evidence. And he has a nice graph of comparing the randomized controlled trials and bringing in Mendelian yeah. randomization studies and yeah. basically showing how there's this concordance and it all kind of comes together. Yeah. And, and, and I think from that, and you mentioned this earlier that I think is really important to remember, and it's important in the context of the saturated fat debate is and he has a nice graph illustrating that is the cumulative exposure. What we're talking about with LDL isn't that it goes up one day and you have heart disease the next, that actually it's the longer that LDL is elevated over time, constantly allowing these underlying processes to happen. Now, why is that important from a dietary perspective? Because the same thing applies the longer that you're exposed to high LDL levels, the more there is an increased risk of heart disease. And in an excellent, there was an incredible 
a researcher, a nutrition scientist who focused hugely on, on heart disease and, and fat called Jeremiah Stamler. He was at Northwestern. Um, and he, in response to a, a pretty problematic paper that came out in, in 2010, he actually reanalyzed data on all these available prospective cohort studies, but weighted high levels of saturated fat by person years of exposure. And so the longer your saturated fat intake was higher, the more your increase for mortality was like a 32% increase in risk for, for more heart disease mortality. And, and so, and that's always been the association. It's not that you have a ribeye and, and collapse the next day. It's the cumulative effect of a diet continually high in saturated fat intake over time that corresponds to a heart attack at 50 maybe or 55 you know yep yeah and so just uh practically when we when we talk about this uh for, for the listeners at home um to, to package this together you know when we're talking about ldl concentration at the in the you know that you're going to get on your um on your lipid panel we're trying to we're trying to achieve certain goals here certain targets um and, and so you have somebody for example who's got a, an ldl level of, of greater than 160 um, and, and you take into account all of their risk factors, and, and that person might qualify for like a statin medication, right? And and depending on their total risk and, and everything else, the a statin is ideally dosed in a way that either lowers their LDL by thirty percent or fifty percent. Just really depends on the patient's other risk factors. Um, but that confers a significant benefit at reducing their risk of ASCVD via lowering. Uh, their LDL, LDL. Um, and, and, you know, and so people, you know, statin things for another conversation, but I do want to include that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's, that's for <laughs> season six of the cut through nutrition. <laughs> um, I do want to include that, you know, cause people then will say you, we guys are just, you know, big pharma. You just try to push medications on this. You well, know, I, know I understood. Statins I, are generic. Pharma doesn't make yeah, anything yeah. off statins. <laughs> yes. Yes. Notice all the new we, statin medications that are coming out. We gain nothing from recommending yeah. statins. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my check. Right. I'm waiting yeah. for my check. But, but the most interesting thing is, again, if you paid attention to those numbers, I was just saying that, you know, the, the, you're trying to achieve a 30% reduction in LDL given, you know, intermediate risk or 50% reduction given high risk uh, for the patient. It, changing the diet, lose achieving weight loss five to ten percent and initiating exercise you might be lucky to get 15 percent reduction in ldl 20 percent reduction in ldl based on the current data so that means that yeah, while while we and the american heart association the national lipid association etc cetera, etc cetera, all want people to engage in these lifestyle changes a person with a markedly elevated ldl okay is is probably going to need additional interventions but with all that in mind i think it's important to talk about you know how this actually pertains to dietary patterns. So we we've kind of gone over the the science behind this, some uh, medical uh, uh, kind of uh, pearls in here. Do you have like a general recommendation that you tend to advise folks on as far as saturated fat intake? Yeah, I think you know we're we're at a point in the research now where we understand that one of the you know big determinants is yes, a high saturated fat intake, but what has been displaced from the diet as a result of a high intake of, of saturated animal fats 
generally it's going to be plant fats of marine or plant fats and fats uh, of marine origin so particularly polyunsaturated fats of of the the long chain variety and then we also have monounsaturated fats and so just just touching on mono for a, a, a second there was a lot of confusion for a lot of years particularly with the epidemiology because a lot of prospective cohort studies were finding this like significant increase in risk with monounsaturated fat. But if you have your nutritionist hat on and you think mono, you think olive oil and nuts and avocados, and it's like, wait. So, so there was this disconnect like with the fats that we think about as monounsaturated fats in the Mediterranean pattern, for example. And actually what was happening was when you scrutinize animal fat, its composition is actually almost almost quite 50 50 so if we take large which everyone would just assume is just pure saturated fat it's not it's about 52 53 saturated fat and the rest is mono so meta-analyses and and some interesting prospective cohort studies in the past three years have have stratified this and looked at monounsaturated fat intake from animal versus plant sources and again finding divergent uh, associations with risks so that is consistent with diet pattern research for say the mediterranean diet and the controlled intervention studies on the mediterranean diet where people increase their fat intake from plant derived monounsaturated fats like olive oil and nuts so we know that actually there's a discrepancy within the, the monounsaturated category what it brings us back to is high animal fat intake so we know from Diet patterns that are, and here's the thing that I, I like to stress to listeners because everyone gets their knickers in a twist over, oh my God, I have to eat a low fat diet. You, you don't. The Mediterranean diet is up to 50% energy from fat, 45, 46, 47, 48. That's not a low fat diet, yet it's considered cardioprotective, but it still contains on average 6 to 8% saturated fat. The predominant fat intake in the Mediterranean diet is unsaturated fat combination of poly and monounsaturated fat but that's even getting a bit too technical for people unsaturated fat from plant and marine sources means oily fish nuts seeds avocado olive oil rapeseed oil and these kind of things and so diets that are are high in those food sources of unsaturated fats are typically beneficial for multiple reasons um but they significantly improve lipid profile, particularly where polyunsaturated fats replace saturated fats. Get a, 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 that's the biggest um, reduction, the most significant reduction in blood lipids from diet will occur when polyunsaturated fats from oily fish like salmon and mackerel and sardines and also from, from vegetable oils like rapeseed oil, for example, replace saturated animal fat and then the second probably most important cornerstone of of these diet patterns is is a high dietary fiber intake fiber has direct ldl lowering mechanisms even in the the 2019 eas guidelines for dietary approaches to dyslipidemia consuming a psyllium husk supplement with meals with with each meal of the day um, is is included in the recommendations for dyslipidemia. So a high dietary fiber intake is is a very important aspect of improving blood lipids through diet. So I think you know as a as a roundup of that, 
whether someone's diet is high or low in total fat at this point doesn't seem to be hugely an issue. What does matter is the composition of fats in the diet. So whether we look at the Japanese diet pattern, the traditional diet pattern, which is very low in total fat, 20% energy from total fat, you might have 17 grams, not percent, grams of saturated fat, like 5 or 6% saturated fat in the traditional Japanese diet in a very low total fat diet. But again, most of the fat's coming from oily fish. And then you look at the Mediterranean diet, which is high in total fat, but we see the same pattern. It's low in saturated fat. It's high in unsaturated fat. So what do you think if you had to ballpark the percentage of total calories from saturated fat in somebody following the carnivore diet? It's all saturated fat. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no other sources of fat. Like it's no, it, it, it would be, it would probably be, they would obviously have a lot of monounsaturated fats because you get a lot of MUFA in meat. So they're just eating what the carnivore diet is like two ribeyes cooked in butter a day, isn't it? Well, you know, that's how you that's the that's how you get healthy. That's that's how you get healthy. That's how you reduce inflammation and, and get rid of <laughs> joint pain. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So so that would probably be somewhere like seventy percent of total daily calories coming from, right. from <laughs> animal fat. Fat. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whereas the recommendation based on present evidence is is probably to keep it at ten percent or less. Is ten percent. Um, Population average in the US and the UK is still sitting around thirteen, twelve. So people say well, is it still worth focusing on getting that down to, but if we extrapolate what we know from the impact of percentage, roughly that, those levels of intake on blood lipids, and if we extrapolate that relative to what we know about blood lipids and heart disease risk, it would, the prediction, and this is based off modeling, uh, because we don't have this data, obviously, but the prediction would be you're talking about an extra 3,000 CBD deaths a year. So I don't think that's inconsequential. This is actually, I think, also a good place to reiterate the important point that we were making earlier in the conversation. Because, you know, the question would be, well, you know, the, circling back to this like editorial that we that sparked all of this, you know, people will go out and they will find PubMed links and throw them in our faces saying, see, there's no link between high or low saturated fatty acid intake and diet. And cardiovascular disease. So, do you want to do you want to reiterate that point so that people can understand why why it's not necessarily a valid criticism in, in most of these cases? Yeah. Okay. So the first is um, in the observational research. Categorically, the most important thing is that because in nutrition, like we said at the start, we compare levels of intake, high versus low, and. Um, that can be, and then the, the relative risk is going to be relative to what you're comparing. Most prospective cohort studies that are out there lack a comparative group that is consuming 10% or less energy from saturated fat. And that's really important because that essentially gives us a, a control group, so to speak. We have a population consuming the recommended guidelines that are we can compare higher levels of intake to. Yeah. So if we do that, and there it's not it's not absent the literature, but it's just a lot of studies. When we look at it through that lens, what we see, and probably the best analysis of this in modeling, 
was the Lee Hooper meta-analysis, which he did for the Cochrane Review. It's the most useful thing they've ever contributed to nutrition science. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and his 2015 meta-analysis is, is brilliant because they took this into account. And what they found was that the most significant risk is from, is from higher levels of intake, 18% plus, 17, 18. We're probably getting into risk when we're over like 15 but the most significant reductions in risk was when you reduced from higher total levels of intake, higher thresholds of intake, with an average reduction from 18% of 8%, you see the strong reductions in, in, in CBD risk. And, and that's consistent with, with everything we've ever known on this issue. Now, if you go taking a cohort study where most of the population consumed between 12 and 14%, or, or uh, the lowest quintile was 11 and the highest was 15, you're, you're just comparing within this gray area that, of course, the relative risk between these groups isn't particularly strong. And, and the other thing that I think is, is, is really important to factor in is the role or, or what, what Walter Willett termed the misuse of meta-analysis in nutrition science. Meta-analyses are very effective when you have trials of roughly the same design, the same research question and everything pulled into it to increase your statistical power. When you start pooling data from different populations, different levels of diet, you just fudge the associations to the null hypothesis. And we end up with, quote, no association. But just as a recent example of how this plays out, when we compare high versus low intakes, another recent meta-analysis came out suggesting no association with saturated fat. But it was by a group of Japanese researchers. And when you looked at their, at their funnel plot for the different studies included, you saw that actually most studies were a little right of the line, suggesting a positive association. And then there were three or four studies way left, suggesting a massive reduction in risk from a, quote, high saturated fat intake. When you looked at those individual studies, they were all in Japanese populations. They were all about 30 years old. And the, quote, highest level of intake was 17 grams a day. Yeah. Grams. That's a, a, a heaped tablespoon of butter. <laughs> and that was the highest quintile. You were comparing 2% versus 6%. Yeah. And of course, you are finding a significant reduction in risk. Now, if you looked at those studies individually, they would do nothing but support the general recommendations we have for lower saturated fat intake. You fudge them into a meta-analysis and you end up with, quote, no association between saturated fat and heart disease. And of course, that's absolutely not the case. These studies in these meta-analyses that have been coming out since 2010, and the first started with, uh, the lead author was, author was uh, Patty Siri Torino, and uh, she was in Ronald Krauss's lab in Oakland. That precipitated a series of meta-analyses, all deciding to use the same crappy methodology, all coming out with the same crappy answer. Yeah. And they're a design flaw of applying meta-analyses to various prospective cohort studies. And that's all they represent. They don't represent a true reflection of what they purport to say the results are. Yeah. So basically, you know, comparing high versus high or low versus low, or, you know, you're, you're not, you're, you're not going to see an effect, but you know, just because there's a slight difference in the intakes, they label them in the studies as higher versus lower intake. And 
So, so, so for anybody who has come across or is looking at uh, data suggesting no correlation, we would encourage you to actually you know, drill down and look at the absolute levels of intake um, so that you can get a good sense of, is it actually comparing high versus low, like, you know, 18 versus 8%, because that would be a pretty surprising finding to compare, you know, 18 versus eight and see no difference. Um, that would be in contra contradiction to everything else that we have out there. But, you know, 20, 22 versus 19 is not high versus you low. Are, you, are, you are <laughs> not going to find any evidence anywhere of populations consuming high absolute levels of intake and high percentages and and low <laughs> and, yeah, and not exactly. an association with heart disease. Yeah. And I think that's really important because as much as people love to hammer on the epidemiology from, you know, certain like the seven countries study, yeah. you go scrutinizing that data. Yes, people were consuming high percentage but it wasn't just the percentage it was grams per day so in the finnish cohorts that were included they were consuming 92 93 grams of saturated fat a day this is in the context of total energy intake in the 60s that was like 2200 300 400 calories you know not 2800 900 that people are consuming on average now yeah. So although the percentage was high, gram intake, absolute intake was was through the roof in multiple of these cohorts. And if you want, if people listening want a really good example of a public health intervention to reduce saturated fat intake from these high levels, the Finnish population and their public health intervention serves as that example. It started in 1972. They had the highest rates of heart disease mortality in the world. They had the highest saturated fat intake of any country in the world, 23%. They also had high rates of alcohol intake and smoking and blood pressure. So starting in 1972, they sought to target this specific scourge in their public health um, by identifying and targeting four risk factors. One was alcohol intake, one was smoking, one was population BMI, one was, and then there was blood pressure and blood, blood lipids. And you can look at their 35-year data that was published in 2009, and what you found was they had an 80% reduction in cardiovascular mortality over that time frame. But of that, the greatest contribution to that reduction from all of those variables that they targeted was a reduction in population-wide blood lipids, blood cholesterol levels that tied to reducing saturated fat from 23 to 13%. So they cut it in half. And the context that makes this even more important is that this occurred while population BMI increased and smoking rates didn't change. Wow. And so it's a very, very... Unlike in the UK, where massive reductions in heart disease mortality since the 60s have occurred in the context of huge reductions in population-wide smoking habits, yeah. the Finns are a great example of almost controlling for weight and yeah. smoking because everyone got fatter and kept smoking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but the specific targeted reduction of saturated... And by the way, they, for all the bulletproof coffee people, they specifically targeted butter. <laughs> That's the, the, the poetic justice of that public health intervention is the food that they specific targeted in terms of their education programs was getting people to reduce their butter intake. 
Yeah, well, butter's a nootropic. Right. If you need that. That's, that's what, you just you what you do is you you wrap your Adderall in butter and then, <laughs> and then you, know, you swallow it. It's like yeah. You swallow it, yeah, with yeah, some with some adafinil yeah, on deck. That's like, that's how. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's uh, uh, yeah. That's next level bio biohacking. Biohacking, yeah, on a higher plane. That's right. So yeah, it sounds like with respect to this paper, you know, the title actually seems to be kind of uh, <laughs> <It's pretty correct. laughs> accurate. Yeah, but yes, but the the actual the actual. I, I um, think he's a genius because you know, I mean, Malhotra is a thorn in the public health side in the UK. He he's so. I think he's just like a misogynist or like some sort of like megalomaniac who's just in love with having this like place in the public eye based on controversy. What? Did you say Port- Boris Johnson? Yeah. <laughs> they could be friends actually. Cause Mal- Malhotra sure. went out and got himself an MP called Tom Watson who lost weight. And now the MP is coming out with a diet book in January. Oh, good. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hate the world. Um, <laughs> Just add it. But I reckon, I guarantee he knew that like that editorial is like the side, the length of like a bad blog post. Right. I reckon he knew I just need to come up with one hell of a title. No one's yeah. going to read it anyway, and it'll just get retweeted and retweeted and retweeted. Yeah. And actually huh. it was the British journal of sports medicine's most retweeted post, mm. And it yeah. was their most read editorial, which is depressing. Yeah. <sighs> sigh yeah well alan you're great dude i like you i, mean, I have a man crush on you just i, I want to let you know that i will let the world know that but i do think it's important to give people some take-home points so you just you can stop me if uh if you have any quibbles or, or things to add so the first take-home point with respect to red meat consumption i i'm in agreement with you that the iarc has probably got the best sort of view on this and so if you're limiting red meat servings to uh, three or less per week, that's about 12 ounces total per week. I feel like you're on the uh, you're, you're probably doing okay, and I would I would have a stipulation that that should be unprocessed, yes. uh, and you meat. should be yes. eating all the plants with that. Yes, ideally, if you were also consuming a diet where you're getting your 10 servings of fruit and veg to, uh, per day, which has a high fiber intake, uh, then you, you'd be you'd be good to go. Um, and then the second recommendation based on our saturated fat discussion would be that total calories per day coming from saturated fat should be under 10%. Um, and, you know, that's probably going to require you to do some calculations of your normal dietary patterns. Um, and if you go to replace what you're, you know, a food that you're getting a bunch of saturated fat uh, from, you shouldn't replace it with refined sugar, but instead uh, you can do polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats, whole grains, uh, and or fruit and vegetable, get, you know, which you're not going to get fat from. But, and you I know, think it, that would trying to make simple food swaps, like if someone does consume a lot of, of, of meat, and I think when people think of red meat, they think of like steak and stuff, but it's also like pork and lamb. Like if you, for example, just replace a couple of those um, meals with like say salmon or oily fish a week. Um, if you cook with butter a lot, you could replace that with say a rapeseed oil. Um, if you bought into the coconut oil craze and you put it on everything, you might want to maybe just swap that out for some olive oil. Um, and you, your nuts, by the way, the phytosterol content of nuts might be really important for reducing LDL. So you could just even add that to your diet as well, as opposed to thinking always of taking something. 
Sure. Yeah, if you need to, uh, because it, ch- it changes the percentages, and yeah. and yeah, it just depends whether you need to be in a, a caloric deficit or not based well, yeah, on based other on your goals. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, very cool. All right, so this is the time where you get to plug all of your stuff. Where can people find you? What do you have coming up? What do you want people to know? So, about? what do I have coming up? I mean, plug, plug your plug your website, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna. That's that's it. So, I you you can find me on Instagram uh, at the Nutritional Advocate. My website is. We're just putting the literally the finishing touches on it this week. As in the contents all there. We're just testing like the PayPal <laughs> um, and integrating that, and so that really should be done and dusted by the end of this week. The name of it is Alinea Nutrition. It's a science-based, obviously nutrition science-based, research-focused website where I wanted to do something along the lines of like reviews, but with a bit of a twist. So video lectures, you'll find two 20-minute lectures on the saturated fat issue and on the replacement nutrient issue when you get to it. And then there's also a weekly deep dive into a study, which is a little bit different to other research reviews out there because I want to educate people about some of the nuances and get people better generally uh, at, at critically appraising nutrition science papers. So it's it's trying to take an educational kind of tone as well. And I'm super f-ing excited for it. Sorry, I cursed on your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and yeah. I'll, I'll bleep that out. Don't worry. The, the question is, where did you come up with the name Alinea? And I ask because I've eaten at a restaurant in Chicago. Those this is on uh, I think it was on Ugly Delicious. How or did, did they table. do that crazy like display for you at the end for dessert? Oh yeah, it comes. There's like this. Uh, uh, it's like a, a a cotton candy like it's, bubble it's, type thing. It and, off the f- like table. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what you don't know is like that is very sensitive to, you know, sharp pointy objects, for instance, beard hair. Right. And so I got this close enough to my face and I popped it and it exploded all over my face. <laughs> and let's just say peeling cotton candy off your own face is yeah. less enjoyable. So I, my brother lives in Chicago and we went to Alinea as a, my mom and dad were over. We went there as a family a while ago and, and the name's kind of stuck in my head. And I, googled what it meant one day and i came across this you know explanation that it's a top it's a typographical uh, yeah it's a new paragraph right. it's that little exactly. sign linea is a little basically grammatical symbol for a new paragraph and like with me and you guys would know that like one of the things i'm beating on all the time is like just the nonce this noise in nutrition this belief system thinking and I kind of, that just stuck in my head and I couldn't shake this idea of, let's just turn the page. Let's just start a new paragraph where we're not being didactic, where we're moving away from this belief stuff. We're rejecting all of that. And we want to be focused on objective appraisal of research that is science informed. And uh, yeah, and I just couldn't shake it. And then I was just like, Alinea. I was like, no one's going to know what it is, but yeah. So that's where the name came from. It was either that or a small genus of lizards. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we're, yeah. Uh, we're, I'll say we're very appreciative of, of what you do. Obviously, you know, it's hard to be, it's not hard. It's impossible to be an expert in, in everything. And so a lot of what you do uh, helps us out even on the clinical practice side. And we try to kind of help spread the message as well. So we encourage all of our listeners to check out your podcast because, I mean, there are lots of research reviews and all this kind of stuff out there, but relatively few of them that do it, I think, as rigorously as you do or 
uh, are people who recognize the importance of the socio social determinants of health. It's more so like, mm-hmm. you know, assuming that people can like, you know, track their macros perfectly. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So recognizing. Yeah. Well, once you control for protein, bro, yeah. it's just like, stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we encourage people to check your stuff out for sure. Amazing guys. Appreciate you having me on again. It's been awesome. All right, thank you so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. There are a lot of links in the description below for you to check out, including our Science of Red Meat Intake article, the NIH Body Weight Planner, that article that I referred to earlier from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that was published in June of 2020. So hopefully that shed some light on some of these dietary pattern goals and also saturated fat intake. Uh, Hopefully we don't have to discuss this too much uh, in the future unless new evidence comes out, in which case we'll be happy to update this and update uh, our information. Next week is a very cool podcast that Dr. Baraki and I put together on abnormal normal labs secondary to exercise, meaning like, hey, I just exercised and I'm going to get my quote unquote blood work done uh, what could possibly go wrong? And it's super interesting. You guys are going to like that. That'll be released next Monday. And every Monday, we're trying to put a new podcast up here uh, wherever you get your podcast from. And so we appreciate you listening. If you could, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our channel, helps get the word out for all the latest nuance in the health and fitness realm. And we'll see you guys next time.